This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. After Roe was overturned, attention turned to what other rights would be on the chopping block. Three Alabama couples had frozen embryos stored for a possible future pregnancy at a fertility clinic in the state. A patient wandering around the clinic dropped the embryos, making them unusable. But late last week, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled the couples could sue for wrongful death. It's an unprecedented decision. The court argued that the Wrongful Death of a Minor Act, quote, applies to all children, born and unborn, without limitation, end quote. What does it mean for couples in Alabama and other states? What impact could it have on the fertility business? And if one state has changed the legal status of frozen embryos, what's to stop others from doing the same? And in international news, the U.S. vetoes a U.N. resolution demanding a humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. We hear why and ask where that leaves negotiations now. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back after this short break. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Joining us to talk about the Alabama case and its national implications is Mary Ziegler. She's a law professor at the University of California Davis School of Law. She's also the author of several books, including Roe, The History of a National Obsession and Reproduction and the Constitution in the United States. Mary, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So the court's decision on Friday was a reversal of a 2022 ruling from a Mobile County Circuit Court judge, which originally dismissed this case. Prior to this decision, frozen embryos were usually treated as legal property. So what are the implications of this decision by the Alabama Supreme Court? Well, I think for starters, it really is going to chill uh, access to in vitro fertilization in the state of Alabama. Uh, If embryos are persons, I think physicians at fertility clinics are going to be afraid of, you know, inadvertently destroying them and incurring either civil liability or criminal charges. It's not clear what's even going to be permitted in terms of IVF protocols going forward. For example, Couples once would have had the option to uh, have embryos destroyed if they're extra embryos 
or donated for research, it seems like those options will be on the table. It's not even clear if every embryo that's created will have to be implanted. So this augurs pretty radical changes for uh, in vitro fertilization and fertility treatment in the state. Now, in 2018, Alabama voters passed a ballot measure that granted fetuses full personhood rights. This measure didn't mention frozen embryos. So in this case, the embryos hadn't even turned into pregnancies yet, but existed outside of the womb. How much further does this decision take this question of personhood? Pretty pretty far, right? Because, I mean, to your point, the anti-abortion movement for a long time has focused its, its personhood efforts on life that exists in the womb, right? That after a pregnancy has already occurred or, um, you know, either a zygote is or embryo or fetus is in the uterus. So this is taking the idea of personhood several steps further. It's not inconsistent with what anti-abortion groups have been arguing for a long time, which is essentially that personhood begins when an egg is fertilized. But its practical implications, I think, are much more transformative. Here's Barbara Colora, president of the National Infertility Association. She spoke to NBC News after the ruling. People in Alabama are going to be diagnosed with infertility. They're going to be told that they need in vitro fertilization to have children. And then they're going to be told, oh, but you live in Alabama and we can't help you because of a Supreme Court ruling and you're going to have to go out of state. That is just not a scenario that we want to see happen, but we have a a great fear that that will be. Now, Mary, we should note that just because an embryo is stored in one state, it doesn't mean the people who created those embryos actually live in that state. So let's say you started that IVF process in Alabama, but now you live in in Maryland or or Illinois. What does that mean for the legal status and, and your responsibility to those embryos that are still being stored in Alabama? This gets us into some of the same kinds of choice of law questions we've started to see raised in the context of people traveling from one state to another for abortion, right? So it may be that Alabama takes one position on what should happen to those embryos and what your responsibilities are in the state where you currently reside, like Maryland, takes a different position. And how that would be resolved in a court of law is ambiguous, right? Choice of law principles are complicated. Um, We haven't seen conflicts like this. As you mentioned, this ruling is unprecedented. So I think it's going to create a lot of legal uncertainty uh, for people who have embryos stored in Alabama, regardless of whether they reside there at the moment or not. We're talking to University of California Davis law professor Mary Ziegler about a recent Alabama state Supreme Court ruling that essentially established personhood for frozen embryos. Mary, for people who aren't familiar with the IVF process, we should explain that many people trying to become pregnant through IVF, they may create multiple embryos to give them the best shot at a viable pregnancy. After a patient becomes pregnant, however, they have to decide what to do with those remaining embryos. And if they don't use them for future pregnancies, they have to pay to store that material until they decide to either donate those embryos or or destroy them. But there is a scenario in which people may abandon those embryos. So what does that mean for the legal responsibility people have towards these embryos in those cases, or for the storage company that's preserving these embryos? Well, if if that embryo is a person, it means that some options clearly seem to be off the table, right? You can't donate a person for research. You can't destroy a person, which obviously changes the calculation facing people who pursue IVF, right? If you're pursuing IVF with a partner, 
if you break up or that relationship ends or you no longer want to have those embryos become pregnancies or children, you no longer will have control over that. That's one of the changes. Um, if we're talking about storage, some anti-abortion groups argue that you shouldn't be able to store excess embryos at all, right? That if embryos are persons, they all have a right to be implanted either in the people who created them or some other couple. They advocate for a process they call embryo adoption, right? Giving embryos to other couples experiencing infertility. Um, and if storage is an option, there are at least implicitly pretty powerful obligations that would be incumbent on both the people who created the embryos and the storage companies, because those persons would have rights, right? Those embryos would have rights. So it's it's going to change, I think, the entire fertility industry in really complicated ways that we haven't, I think, fully seen play out or even understood. We're going to take a short break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. We got this question from Bill who asks, how does this ruling affect estate law? Are embryos entitled to part of an estate if the parents die? Do frozen embryos become adults at age 18 or 21? So many problems that don't appear to have been considered. Mary, your thoughts? Well, so this ruling at the moment is supposed to be limited to the state's wrongful death law, which is an explosive enough potential because wrongful death law, of course, um, allows for lawsuits anytime an embryo is destroyed. Uh, certainly, the court's ruling augurs the the possibility, I think even likelihood, that the Alabama Supreme Court will say that an embryo is a person for other legal purposes and contexts, too. So at the moment, we don't know, right? It's theoretically possible the Alabama Supreme Court could just say, well, we're not, we're not going to resolve those other questions. We're just sticking with our conclusions about the wrongful death law. But I, I think it's fair to read the opinion as implying that an embryo or fetus is a person for other contexts, other purposes, 
And I think that is going to be a sort of Pandora's box. And it's unclear, you know, how the state of Alabama would resolve those questions if it has to confront them. Alabama has a near total abortion ban, which makes no exceptions for victims of sexual assault or incest. The state also accounts for nearly half of all pregnancy related criminal offenses in the country. That's according to the nonprofit Pregnancy Justice. Alabama is the first state to rule on frozen embryos. But what concerns are there that we'll see more extreme restrictions across the country on not just abortion, but on reproductive rights more broadly? Well, I think there there are several concerns, right? This idea that a fetus or an embryo is a person has been a kind of animating principle or primary objective of the anti-abortion movement since the 1960s. So in states where the anti-abortion movement has a lot of influence, it would not be surprising to say state to see state supreme courts act on this principle more in the context of in vitro fertilization as well as abortion and a single ruling like this shifts the overton window right it, it no i think it's hard to be the first state to take a step like this given the political backlash that's likely to follow and given the practical complications it raises but now that the Alabama Supreme Court has taken this step i think you'd expect to see other states where the anti-abortion movement has a lot of influence considering making similar moves. Um, And if a a state views a fetus or embryo as a person, the implications of that, I think, could be even broader than abortion um, or in vitro fertilization. I think there are other things that could change, too. Alabama Supreme Court's Chief Justice Tom Parker quoted the Bible in a concurring opinion and mentioned God and his, quote-unquote, wrath. What does it mean to have justices explicitly invoking religion in this decision? Well, it's, it's interesting because the Alabama Supreme Court framed its invocation of religion as consistent with democracy and with the will of the people of Alabama. So the, the chief justice, in his opinion, made clear that the people of Alabama had embraced Christian religious teachings. So there was no daylight, in his view, between those religious teachings and the meaning of the state's constitution. This, I think, is a sign of the growing influence of the Christian legal movement, right, which I think is distinct from the conservative legal movement, the groups we've become accustomed to hearing about, like the Federalist Society. And these groups, I think, have long believed and argued that the Constitution should be understood as a Christian document. And we're starting to see uh, judges in places like Alabama say that quiet part out loud and advocate for it forcefully. I think this is going, isn't going to be the last context in which we see those arguments appear. So briefly, Mary, what does the path ahead look like after this decision? Well, I think we're likely to see Uh, two things emerging from this decision. One, pressure from anti-abortion groups on other state courts and even state lawmakers to take similar steps on IVF. And two, the use of this ruling as a precedent to suggest that a fetus or embryo is a person in other contexts, including abortion, including potentially for future U.S. Supreme Court litigation. That was Mary Ziegler, a law professor at UC Davis. Coming up, we turn to international news. The United States vetoed a U.N. resolution calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war and has made an alternate proposal. Why? Stick with us to find out. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This week, emotions are running high at the United Nations Security Council. The veto of this draft resolution 
is not only regrettable after weeks of consultations with every single council member and after endless patience by the state of Palestine, the Arab states, and nearly the entire international community that for months have demanded a ceasefire. It is absolutely reckless and dangerous against, she again, shielding Israel, even as it commits the most shocking crimes. And this council must put politics aside for the sake of its mandate. A ceasefire that allows Hamas to remain in power means ensured death and destruction. Ignoring Hamas's atrocities and not condemning them means empowering terrorists worldwide. That was Riyad Mansour, Palestinian ambassador to the United Nations, followed by Gilad Erdan, Israel's ambassador to the United Nations. Their comments came after the United States vetoed an Arab-backed and widely supported UN resolution. It demanded an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. It's been more than 130 days since October 7th and Hamas's attack on Israel. Israeli officials say around 1,200 people were killed and around 250 taken hostage that day. About half of them remained captive and some are believed to be dead. More than 29,000 Palestinians have been killed since the start of Israel's retaliatory attacks, more than half of them women and children. That's the latest count this week from Gaza's health ministry. Joining us now with the latest is Barack Ravid. He's a political reporter and Middle East expert for Axios, covering foreign policy and the 2024 election. He's also author of Trump's Peace, the Abraham Accords, and the Reshaping of the Middle East. Barack, welcome back to the program. Hi, good to be with you. So let's start at the U.N. Security Council in New York. On Tuesday, the U.S. vetoed another draft resolution blocking a demand for an immediate ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Walk us through what happened. Well, uh, this thing started, I think, something like a month ago when uh, Algeria, who is the new Arab member of the Security Council, wanted to put forward this resolution calling for a ceasefire. Um, The U.S. tried to slow walk it. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken spoke several times with his Algerian counterpart and told him, listen, we're working on a hostage, hostage deal that could lead to a ceasefire. And the Algerians waited and waited and then decided yesterday to just put this to a vote. Uh, the U.S. tried before the vote to put uh, forward an alternative text. Uh, this was a sort of a U.N. maneuver to try and reach a situation where the, the Algerians will not have enough votes uh, and then the U.S. will not have to veto the resolution. It didn't work. Uh, the Algerians did get 13 countries to vote in favor of their resolution and the U.S. US had to veto. And the United Kingdom abstained in that vote. How how does this vote reflect global sentiment right now? I think it's, um, on the one hand, it reflects uh, global sentiment. On the other hand, it doesn't uh, accurately reflect global sentiment, meaning... Everybody wants to see a ceasefire. It's 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 obvious. I don't think, you know, I think, you know, the vast majority of countries around the world want to see a ceasefire in Gaza. But there are many, many nuances. And I think that when you look at the, uh, the countries who voted in favor, most of them would have voted in favor of the U.S. text, too, mm. meaning it's it's the the, the only issue we're discussing, and this is why the the resolution failed, is whether the ceasefire needs to be right now 
or it needs to be on in a wider context of being as part of a release of hostages. That, that's more or less the discussion. And um, I think that the U.S. position is that it needs to be part of a hostage deal. By the way, a lot of the countries who voted in favor of the resolution yesterday, again, don't disagree. Okay, so I think on the one hand, it does reflect something. On the other hand, it doesn't accurately reflect it. You reported that President Biden and Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu had conversations this week. What were the tones of those discussions? Well, I think Biden is trying to sort of, you know, you can you can ask if the right word is press, if the right word is urge, if the right word is encourage. But the bottom line is Biden wants a hostage deal. And to get a hostage deal, uh, you need, obviously, Hamas to agree, which they're still not there yet. And you need Netanyahu to agree, which he's still not there yet. Uh, Biden cannot really press Hamas because the U.S. is not talking to Hamas. So he's speaking to Netanyahu and trying to you know, make it clear to him that a hostage deal is a U.S. priority. Why is it a U.S. priority? Because a ceasefire is a U.S. priority. And the U.S. knows that the only way to get one is through a hostage deal. And I think this is this is the where everything starts and everything ends, whether you can get a hostage deal in Gaza. Um, President Biden's envoy, Brett McGurk, was in Egypt today spoke to the Egyptian mediators. He's going to go to Israel later tonight. Um, and until now, it doesn't seem that there's, you know, that we're close to a deal. It doesn't mean that everything is stuck. But again, we're not there yet. And until there's not going to be a hostage deal, the Biden administration is going to continue to scramble to try and get one because that's the only way to get to a ceasefire. At the Munich Security Conference this past weekend, Qatar's prime minister noted difficulties in the humanitarian part of the negotiations. What is the state of humanitarian aid in southern Gaza right now? Well, it's very bad. The, the, not only in southern Gaza, in the entire Gaza Strip, situation is very, very bad. I think what that what what the prime minister was uh, referring to when he said that was that. Um, Things are stuck in the in also in the in the humanitarian part of the hostage deal because it's a three stage deal and the parties are trying to get the first stage going and the first stage is talking about the release of the remaining women uh, who are in captivity and men who are uh, critically wounded um, and the parties are are calling this part the humanitarian part. Um, and part of the deal will be um, the increasing of aid that will come into Gaza. Uh, right now, we're talking about something between 100 and 200 trucks a day on a good day. Uh, Hamas demands 500 trucks. Um, and, you know, to, to do that, it's not enough for the parties to agree because you need ways to make this, uh, to deliver this aid to the entire Gaza Strip. And the situation in Gaza, that the infrastructure, which is almost completely destroyed, the roads, uh, there's nobody to uh, escort the trucks and prevent uh, looting. So even if you get a lot of trucks in, the delivery to the people in need is, is a very big challenge.
There was criticism of the U.S. veto at the United Nations with member states saying it provided cover for Israel's imminent invasion of Rafah. On Tuesday, White House official John Kirby said an operation in Rafah would be a, quote, disaster if Israel's military doesn't properly account for the safety of Palestinian refugees in the city. And just a reminder that more than half of Gaza's 2.3 million people have sought refuge in Rafah. But this weekend, Benjamin Netanyahu and his war cabinet vowed to, quote, finish the job in Rafah. Where do operations in that city? city stand now? So again, at least from everything I hear from both Israeli and U.S. officials, there's no imminent uh, operation in Rafah. Um, And I spoke to at least two very senior U.S. officials and two very senior Israeli officials just in the last 48 hours. They don't see such an operation happening before the end of Ramadan which is, we're talking about mid-April. So it's two months from now. Um, That obviously can always change, but just at the moment, at least, everything I know is that we're not going to see an Israeli operation this week or next week or the week after. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu is under immense pressure to bring home the more than 130 hostages still being held. But yesterday he said that while the release of hostages was, quote, very important, their return could not happen at any cost. What reaction has that received in Israel? Uh, so, you know, first, that reflects um, a big part of Israeli public opinion. I don't know if it's the majority. I don't know if it's half of the uh, Israel's public opinion. But there's a big constituency uh, in Israel that thinks that the release of the hostages is not the number one priority that the number one priority is the destruction of Hamas. Uh, and, you know, you can argue whether this is a, you know, the, the right priority or not, but uh, there are a lot of people in the Israeli society who think that if they have to choose between destruction of Hamas and the release of the hostages, um, they would pick the former the, rather than the latter. That's all for today. Thanks to our guests, Mary Ziegler of UC Davis and Barack Ravid of Axios. If you haven't heard yet, we just launched 1A+. When you join 1A+, you get to listen to our show sponsor-free and you're supporting our work. Go to plus.npr.org slash the 1A to find out more. Today's producer was Maya Garg. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk more soon. This is One This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. 
Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.